So, first, I'd like to um, um, introduce uh, Nick Mahoney, who will who who will begin the, the discussions. Hi, hi everyone. So, cultural democracy has a history. Um, mostly, that history has been talked about in the arts and cultural sector, but it's the topic is a lot broader than that. And I'm here um, representing the Raymond Williams Foundation to. Um, advocate for a conversation that's a lot broader about culture um, and the relationship between culture as we live it in our, our, in his words, our whole way of life, but also about the relationship between culture and politics and very importantly, democracy. So these are big terms, but we're living out versions of these terms in our lives every day. And that's what we're here to share. As much as we're here also, to um, try and develop some collective ideas that can um, influence, we hope again, the Labour Party and and its emerging and and the discussion that's got, that we want to be part of within the Labour Party about its cultural program. Um, we think its cultural program should be a much more ambitious than it is, much more radical than it is at the moment. As, and when I say at the moment, as was articulated in the 2017 manifesto, um, and to get that ambitious version of um, a cultural programme, we need to have this collective conversation and people need to feed in all their knowledge and experiences to that. Um, so last year, um, Ash, uh, who's sitting up there, and myself and others had um, convened a few sessions at TWT to, talk, to start a conversation about that. And they were really, yeah, we found them really interesting and useful and helpful and energising. And this year we're back to run some more so, um, yeah, I'll leave it at that for now, just to provide a little bit of context. Um, and next, I'd like to introduce you to um, Sophie Hall, who will talk a bit about the um, history, perhaps, of cultural democracy. Um, I can't really talk about the whole of the history of cultural democracy, but rather what um, uh, something that I'm... Something I'm we, we were we were talking about earlier, and something I'm really sort of passionate and keen about is to acknowledge the the plural histories of this thing we're calling cultural democracy. And um, it's so ex brilliant that so many people are here in the room, um, probably with all sorts of knowledges and and experiences. So something we um, we're thinking about as part of this movement for cultural democracy could be to. Um, develop or set up a cultural democracy histories collective which could pull our resources, our archives, our um, experiences and make things publicly available and um, think about ways of, of publishing, distributing in a way that reflects the kind of principles, the ethos, philosophies of and politics of cultural democracy in that, in that way of doing histories and, and, and research. Um, so if this is a bit of a call out, if anyone is interested in that and is doing that anyway or feels connected to it in some way, um, please do uh, let me know. Um, we've got a, a, an email list to start with. It's got, we've got to start somewhere. Um, we've started a, a draft partial reading list, which is very um, gappy um, and needs adding to. Um, so, yeah, the, the idea is that we make these, these timelines, these reading lists, um, this material uh, available so that people can, can add to it. And um, one of the kind of concerns that, 
that I have and others I've been speaking to is that a lot of these histories are um, often, often marginalised and unwritten un or um, younger generations of, of activists and artists um, don't necessarily know about um, some of these histories and it, that's a, a real shame and needs, we need to do something about that collectively, ideally. So, yeah, let me know, have a reading list and um, contribute if you'd like and get involved. Okay, um, my name is Peter Stark. Um, uh, 50 years ago, I was a member of the New Activities Committee of the Arts Council. Yeah, very later. Yeah, sorry? Okay. Oh, you're yeah. recording it. Oh, okay, right, okay. Sorry, uh, apologies. My name is Peter Stark, and 50 years ago, I was a member of the New Activities Committee, and then I found a member of the community, first Community Arts Committee at the Arts. What? Sorry. Um, right, okay. And for the third time of asking, <laughs> Anthony Joshua will now. Uh, <laughs> my name is Peter Sark. Uh, 50 years ago, I was a member of the New Activities Committee of the Arts Council. And then a founding member of the Community Arts Committee as well. Uh, so, <laughs> Louder! Uh, I also do mime. Um, okay. And... Um, and fast forward through a rather interesting career, and about four years ago with Steve Trow, who was one of the founding members of Jubilee Community Arts, and our colleague David Powell, who's joining us later, uh, we wrote the GPS Culture series of uh, reports on the imbalances in funding between London and the rest of the country, and the misuse of lottery funds. And out of that, I was asked to run a couple of workshops for the movement, which I've been doing. And the three main things I want to say around the funding for cultural democracy, which was what my subject was, are as follows. The first is that lottery funding has been used to substitute for public funding by the Arts Council of England, faced with a £105 million cut in their core grant. They have translated lottery funding into funding the CBSO, Welsh National Opera, ICA, Crafts Council, etc., contrary to the spirit and the letter of directions given on the lottery. On top of that, they've continued to take flexible funding and direct it towards their national portfolio organisations, um, which may be understandable, but what it has done is it has muddied the water and it has enabled the Arts Council to take funds that were meant to be separate and oriented towards community and local benefit and allocate them to their own chosen national portfolio, important as that national portfolio is. So the contention is that that needs to be separated again and that the austerity cut to the Arts Council needs to be replaced on condition that national portfolio organisations, including their touring work, including their educational work, should in future be funded by treasury funds, leaving lottery funding in the arts alone of 230 million a year, free to be redeployed through a process of devolution to locally agreed, locally developed plans and opportunities to bring cultural democracy back 
and rectify the cuts at local level which have decimated our local cultural infrastructure in a way which has not been commented upon or championed by anybody and it needs to be and it needs to be done by this party and it needs to be done by this movement. Yeah? Secondly, Secondly, we need, to be, we need to, be, to be looking at how capital funds that will be available through the capital investment fund under an incoming Labour government can be deployed with, for local cultural infrastructure. And there I think we've got a real triple win opportunity in focusing on the renewal of our local libraries throughout the country. It's the last piece of democratically distributed local cultural infrastructure that we've got. It's been decimated by this government. It has cross-party support. It's a win, we can win it, and the Labour Party should be championing the cause of local libraries in a post-truth era, broadened in their use, for a range of community uses reinvested in, in terms of space, in terms of skills, whether those skills are professional as they must be, but also in voluntary skills and so on. They're safe spaces, they're known to be safe spaces, and they gain huge public support. It's a win for the Labour Party to go down that route. So, so my, my argument is that we need to value the national portfolio organisations but fund them from Treasury and tell them that a fundamental part of what they are given their public money to do is the education, outreach and touring work that is not an additional extra but should be a core part of what they do. Lottery funding needs to be treated separately, devolved to a local level and operated in collaboration with other funds available through the lottery, through Sport England, through Heritage Lottery Fund and the Big Lottery Fund to find the money that is needed to reinvest in the local infrastructure of our communities. And thirdly, as a key to the local investment potential of the National Cultural Invest the National Investment Fund, we need to be wary of the big beasts with the big snouts heading for the trough, wanting to say that what they need is a new theatre space or a new gallery or a new whatever. We need that money to be invested at local level, and I think the libraries are probably the way to go as a flagship for that project. Okay. Thanks, Peter. Um, so, um, I've been um, looking at um, re the idea of regenerating regeneration. Um, so, for me, uh, regeneration has become a dirty word, um, and Kulchat's role within it is increasingly to act as its lapdog and its servant to, to, to what would be seen as, I would call, art wash, the gentrification and social cleansing of working-class communities, not just within London, although it's a prime example, but in Leith, in Liverpool, in Manchester, in all Newcastle, and all over the country. And that, for me, that use of culture is a misuse of culture and a misuse of creativity. And when that happens, creativity become, becomes uncreative. And that is no good for our communities or for any of our health at all. And what I, what I suggest um, is that that many of um, many of the Labour councils 
and in fact the National Labour Party pay lip service to the needs of, of, of working class communities. We don't talk enough about social housing. When I'm not talking about, uh, or main, what I'm really talking about is council housing. We don't talk about that. We don't, we don't address these things. And unless Labour actually backs a policy that really, really tackles the chronic issues around social housing that, and, and, and the needs of our communities, then, then then we will be no further forward. It is, we must deal with this. And arts can play a role, but it cannot solve these issues. And the role that, for example, arts can play is um, I'm working on communities with the idea of using arts and cultural funding to build wind turbines in Category D villages in Durham um, with the idea that all of the, the money that comes but will come from, from feed into the national grid, goes into a, a grassroots community um, trust, um, which is, oh, and the, the windmills themselves are owned by the communities, and all the money they get, to, they decide how that money's spent. No, nobody else, so it's real grassroots, um, real grassroots thing. And I guess, so for me, I'm interested in, in taking culture away, from, as Peter mentioned, away from the elites and giving it back to where it always has been in everyday culture. And then through that, we can regenerate regeneration as what it is, a humanistic um, thing, a natural thing, and not something that should be at the service of neoliberalism. And, um, next, it's Musa. Hi everyone, my name is Musa, um, and I'm a community organizer um, and I'm part of the national um, company of community organizing. Um, I'm based in North London and I work also for an organization um, called the Selby Trust. Um, I've been involved with the cultural democracy uh, movement uh, around my work. Um, as I train people in community organizing. Yeah. Um, so we have a specific process, a specific way of organizing people, which are um, systematically uh, around eight steps. But essentially, um, our concept is around three, three main uh, focus, which are um, the listening, number one is listening, is how, how we, we listen to the community to build stronger bond around uh, different, different people and bring like-minded people together to, to understand how they can work together. Uh, this, the, the second concept is around power, so we, we teach people how to understand power and how they can nurture their power in order to, to shift power from those who have to those who haven't. Um, and finally, we, um, we support people to take action and, uh, and feel um, empowered enough to, to tackle their own issue. Um, so in this context, uh, we developed a platform in, in Haringey, uh, in North London, called Spoken, who uh, which use creativity as a as a as a way of uh, looking at culture um, that has been historically not heard. Um, so um, we use spoken word, we use drama, we use music uh, to 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 create this space for 
for them to 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 look to look at ways to um, create more opportunity for those who haven't. Uh, yeah, for now, that's me. Hi, so my name is Rihanna Mai, and I co-run and co-founded a company called Commonwealth. We're a theatre company that sits between Bradford and Cardiff, and we work internationally. Um, and our work is site-specific. We work in the we work with people. Um, we often work with people who have never um, performed before. We're interested in stories and storytelling, and who gets the right to tell their story. How can we find the stories within um, and share them? Um, and a lot of our work, we would call ourselves a socialist theatre company, and a lot of our work is in working class areas, especially in the UK. Um, the industry that I have found myself in is elitist, we all know that. Um, and for me, as a working class woman, I've had to badge my way in to get into that industry. Sometimes I have to shapeshift a little bit, because it is full of elites, and there isn't much space for us. And the danger is... Um, that we become instrumentalised. Our work becomes instrumental to their vision. This is a massive danger for young working class people if they're lucky enough to even get through the door. Um, what I've been doing over the past couple of years is I've been, I've been talking to a lot of working class artists. There's not that many of them, so I've, I've found them and I've had, had some conversations. And some of the things that have stood out for them is... And one of the main things that stood out for them is how they're seen and how they're represented, especially actors or people who've had lived experience and then that lived experience is shared back to them. Because what they're finding is that representation is often created by people who don't share the same history as them. And what they're seeing back to them is a caricature of their lives and how dangerous that is as a form of storytelling. When I go to the theatre and I see working class stories on stage, they're often of drug addicts or the care system or domestic violence. There's nothing there that celebrates the communities that we come from. Um, and that feels very um, essential, actually, for change, is how we see ourselves and how we value our own experiences. So that's what I'm really interested in. And also this idea of story snatching. You know, at the moment, it's very popular to go into a community, to drop in, steal some stories, and then share them back. What that does with the power, you know, you can see. So I feel like that's really at the heart of creating work, is how we stop story snatching from happening, and how we find it in, inside ourselves to be able to share our own stories. And whose stories get valued, right? Um, uh, so... What I've been thinking about quite a lot, so I, I, I live in Cardiff in Wales, and in the Welsh Arts Council, they spend 4.3 million on the Welsh National Opera. If you're a young artist and you're just starting out and you want to apply for some money, you want to do a research and development, the top amount you can apply for is £3,000. And to get that £3,000, you have to answer a shitload of questions about how you're going to reach the community, how you're going to bring in new audiences, how you're going to market your work to new audiences. And that becomes a very dangerous situation because you get people who aren't qualified going into places and making shit up. And that, that impact on the community they're going into is massive. Um, so my question is, what happens if really at the centre of the Arts Council, what if it really is about people? Because that £4.3 that... WNO get, what if we replace that and really put people 
at the centre of it and this work at the centre of it? What would happen? Um, just one final thing is um, we shouldn't ever wait for permission to do stuff. I've been working with a group of steelworkers in Patalbert and uh, I went and spoke to them about class and the arts and they had no fucking idea <laughs> what I was on about because they work in a steelworks and every year for 50 years they've been making um, a pantomime and they write it, they direct it, they produce it, they perform in it and they work as steelworkers and they've never ever come across this elitist industry because they're not part of it and they don't want to be part of it, they're just doing it and they're doing it their way and actually that show sells out months and months in advance and that is just showing actually what we're What's, what, what we can do, what we're capable of. So I think, yeah, I'm just going to leave you with the steelworkers because I think, yeah, if we can all channel a bit of that energy, we can really do something. Hi. Um, thanks for coming. So there, there are a few things that I wanted to share, I guess, as... Um, two hats that I'm wearing today. So I work for a youth music charity in London called Sound Connections. And I also work for uh, an archive called the George Padmore Institute, which holds lots of radical, quote unquote, black and Asian histories dating back to the sort of late 50s. Um, and, and my work in both of those places has really informed my practice in both. Um, I met Stephen uh, some time ago, but I guess we reconnected last year when he spoke at a conference I put on, uh, our, our annual conference at Sound Connections, and it was a few months into my, my time at that position. Um, and I'd come into the music education sector seeing how much social justice had become this new buzzword, but it was very divorced from politics. And so I became very interested in how, in, in what art, in what a kind of political mandate or a kind of political practice within the arts, specifically within music education, might look like. So over the last year, we've taken a lot of the learnings from that conference and put them into action. So a few things that we've done that I hope will serve as maybe inspiration points, and if you want to collaborate too, that would be quite uh, cool. Um, the first thing that we have is we have our quarterly meetings, and these began as sort of, um, I guess, forums for it, but where people could share practice. But I was very interested in what might happen if you took regular people working in the arts and put them in conversation with the people that we typically populate our funding applications with. So the parents, the youth workers, the young people, uh, black people, <laughs> working class people, disabled people. And what if they were to lead sessions and we were to develop a real political dialogue where we could take the lived experience of people, where we could take actual politics and use them to transform the way that we write applications, the way that we allocate funding, and the way that we prioritise our work. And actually, over the last year, what we've seen is that that very thing has happened. So now we're looking at how we can start to subsidise more tickets for, for people who can't afford them. We are... Um, we're having much more difficult conversations with funders, so asking them to change their priorities. Um, Stephen did a really fantastic session looking at neoliberalism, language, and engagement. Um, and I think that's a real issue in the arts in that we have a corrupt political system setting criteria which sets outcomes and we get stuck in this loop. But what's difficult, I think particularly for me as a black woman, is that you walk into this kind of structure of common sense and it's never questioned. It's just kind of a given. So when you're the body in the room that doesn't really fit the common sense criteria, 
it's just hella awkward every day and you're like, how can I fix this? So um, what we've done is we started having difficult conversations. Now my team can talk more openly about race than they did a year ago. No one kind of freezes up and goes like really pale. They're willing to talk about colonialism now, which is really brilliant. We, we actually had um, an entire training day that was sold out where we looked at the relationship between colonialism and music. And now higher, higher arts education uh, institutions are looking at how they can change their curriculum, how they might be able to switch up their practice. And so I think like we all know what the problems are, but I think over the years what I've learned is that it, it's having the conversation that counts towards making the change. So I'd invite you all to think about how you're going to sit down around the table, disrupt who's at the table, and have the difficult conversations. Um, and I guess the other thing that I wanted to bring is in relation to building a kind of archive of cultural democracy, is thinking critically about what's in the archive and who's told the stories in there. So working at a black archive, I think, has been particularly challenging coming here today and listening to the very kind of romanticized histories about anti-racism that we like to hold on to on the left. Um, often black women's voices are erased. Any, any histories that might critique the idea that unity was, was once a thing that always happened and it was great, uh, they're always kicked out of the room. But where I work, we've got endless archives of people recording their difficult conversations. And so to presume that all the kind of tough chats that we're having now are new, is really, really, really naive and is going to be the thing that will prevent us from going anywhere. So um, one archive that I, I guess I could contribute is the National Movement for Anti-Racism in Education. And it was a movement that fell apart, actually, because people didn't want to talk about anti-racism. But it, came to, it was a, a cohort of teachers and educators who really wanted to look at what would happen if you, if you structurally critiqued racism. In, in, in education and the movement lasted for about 40 years um, but again in, in, in lots of different movements you can trace the trajectory of where they fall and every fall is because people don't want to have tough conversations um, so I hope that that's something that we can fix um, yeah I'll leave it there yeah <laughs> Um, hi, so uh, yeah, Francis Northrop, and I'm currently the uh, director for communities and localities at the New Economics Foundation. And I was just thinking about what you said, Rhiannon, about kind of busting your way in from the outside. So uh, my background, if you think of it as a career, is uh, it started in Bradford 20 years ago when I was a single parent working in a local primary school, trying to get people, um, parents involved in the school, in their children's education, um, and. And kind of that received wisdom that um, it was kind of back, so yeah, when um, New Labour were around, there was still quite a lot of money around, and there was a very sort of paternalistic kind of, you know, where the council, here's the money, this is how you engage. And over time, um, as I worked with people, the mothers and fathers at the school, I realised that there was all this richness of information and knowledge and experience, and yet it wasn't ever kind of really absorbed into the school or into how things happened there. Um, it was more about making sure that it was almost kind of like making sure that they were happier so their kids were happier so their kids could learn. And that was really interesting, sort of a, sort of a start, I suppose. And then moving on to working in sort of more 
um, kind of economic sort of economic community development roles when austerity was kicking in seeing that actually what you were doing was just ameliorating these worst excesses of things and actually what you, we need to do is fundamentally structurally change things so when you're working with local government trying to sort of you know around asset transfers or trying to sort of do things which actually were transformational then um Council are actively working against you. So developers, act, you know, they're actively working, they're being financialised, corporatised, so they're working with the system that is stacked against everybody instead of working for us, which just makes no sense at all. So um, I guess my, um, my interest in this is about... It's about participation, it's about how people can collectively um, make policy and make decisions about our shared wealth because taxation is our shared wealth and you know the things that we, um, that we make decisions about should be collectively made and also should be made more closely to where people are rather than centrally. So uh, yeah, that's my interest. Uh, right, well, thanks for all those uh, very short uh, introductions to some of the work that we've been doing. There's a lot more, um, and we'll be publishing more on our website and through other force, uh, forms as well, uh, which we'll announce shortly. But um, I'd, I'd really like uh, to open... You've, you've heard from a lot of people now, we'd just like to have a conversation for the rest of the time, if that's okay. So I've got... What, what will happen is, if I look after this side of the room, Nick, can you look after the other, please? So, to start. Cheers. Um, cheers, that was really interesting. Um, I'm, uh, yeah, we'd just like to know the uh, panel's thoughts and maybe anyone else's thoughts on kind of uh, reform versus an abolition, really, of some of these things. I know with the uh, Campaign for Cultural Democracy, there's talk about, rather than the Arts Council, making the like uh, National Arts Fund. Um, which sounds really interesting as a new democratic kind of institution. Um, and then also Rihanna mentioning the steelworkers pantomime and sort of doing it just completely outside of these things. So I just, outside of the kind of bourgeois institutions. So I just wonder, yes, what the panel's thoughts are on, uh, on that and whether it's even worth trying to reform a lot of these things. Very briefly, I think we need to work both both ways, both ways round. Um, we need to the idea of the manifesto um, that we want to collectively develop is to articulate some of those collective demands and have something that comes out of the collective process that's kind of concrete that we can then campaign around, um, build some strategy around it. You know, perhaps take one or two of the things and try and get Labour to adopt those. So thereby um, influence structural reforms but at the same time to campaign for any of those things and also to to implement to have these discussions at the grassroots level we need a coalition we need an alliance of organizations and individuals who are all committed to these um, these issues and to um, you know discussing them at all levels um, so we need to in, in my in my own view we need to do um, to do both um, I agree with Nick but also um I want something that recognises the value of what those steelworkers are doing because that's happening everywhere, all over the UK. And we don't, the funders are not seeing the value of that. Instead, they're seeing value in artists, whatever that artist 
word means, going into those communities and showing people what art is, but actually it already exists there. So I think it's how, what value we put on working class communities and the work that they make. Give the steel workers a hundred quid, they're flying, you know, give each community a hundred quid, buzzing, do you know what I mean? So it's like how we, yeah, how we identify that and put value on it is really important. I don't know, is this on? Yeah. Um, the last time I was in this room, I was watching Jackie Walker talk about racism. Um, she was later suspended, and we helped her make the play The Lynching, which is actually on tonight at uh, um, Blackburn House. I wondered what you thought about the place of political theatre. I took your point about not waiting for funding because we didn't. We all volunteered our time and helped to put on the play because we thought it was an important message to get out. But I went to a meeting at Brighton last year uh, about political theatre and everyone was saying, oh no, theatre isn't about politics. You can't make political change through theatre. I was a bit disgusted because we were about to put the play on that evening. <laughs> so what do you think about political theatre? I think, uh, I think all theatre is political. Everything, the fact that, you know... It <laughs> and, and who gets to make it is political. You know, the fact that I'm a woman making theatre, I'm a director as a woman, is political. Um, so, yeah, that's my... Yeah, it is. Okay, I've, I've got a very uh, sort of specific question because Rhiannon uh, talked about the problems to do with the kind of the establishment uh, in, in her neck of the woods. Uh, that it, that it was, I, I'm not sure whether it wasn't particularly helpful or not, but I'd like to know about the National Theatre of Wheels, which I think is their title, and whether, well, it, as it happens, I know the person who actually runs the National Theatre of Wales, and I, but I know they've had a lot of publicity suggesting that they're a great community asset, so I'd like to know Rhiannon's views about the National Theatre of Wales and how, right on how helpful or otherwise they've been. Thank you. Um. Right, okay, so the National, National Theatre of Wales is, uh, is really important. And I've been working with National Theatre Wales on and off for about seven years. I know the founder, John McGuire, very well. Um, but at the moment, it's got into a bit of a sticky situation, um, which I don't know if you know about. Does everybody know about it? So, the <laughs> so recently, a group of writers from Wales wrote a letter um, and published a letter um, stating their demands for a new version of National Theatre Wales because they believe that um, there isn't enough Welsh represent representation in National Theatre Wales in terms of who they're commissioning um, and that they're not producing the work that they should be producing. So that was kind of the overall statement. Um, National Theatre Wales is going through a lot of change um, and I think it's trying to re-establish itself and find itself has just had a new artistic director who is very good, I know her as well. But um, for us, we didn't have a National Theatre for a very long time and the work that originally was done by National Theatre Wales really spoke to our country and really got into 
each community is a site-specific theatre company, so it, it travels around. And it was really doing a lot of great work. I've done a show with them myself. I did the Port Talbot show um, with them, and we worked with a group of steelworkers. But more recently, they've commissioned a lot of English makers to come into Wales and to create work. And there's a bit of... Um, it's leaving a bit of taste in people's mouths because actually we have to believe in Welsh artists and if you can't see yourself on a big platform then, then we don't feel valued and it's really important for National Theatre Wales to believe in us as Welsh artists so we feel like we've got some future and we've got an ecology that we can be really proud of and celebrate. That's the problem at the moment. TBC. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. My name's Gary Parker. I'm a, a Labour councillor in Greenwich, South East London. Uh, my local authority has had £100 million in cuts since 2010. And obviously, that's had a massive impact on local services, especially on cultural services. At the same time, I was interested in what one of the other speakers was saying about regeneration, um, because our borough uh, is blighted by big developers, unlike many other parts of the country. Um, and now a one-bedroom flat costs half a million pounds, a two-bedroom one is a million pounds in some parts of the borough. And the cultural knock-on for that is that the council is now trying to focus on other people, incomers, who are not necessarily interested in working-class culture of any description, probably don't even live there. Yet the cultural offer that they get is... Uh, in real terms, much greater than many of the local people. Mm. Um, my solution to that is focusing on the very local libraries, community arts festivals, mm. a bit like where I'm from in Preston uh, this weekend. They've had a great uh, festival on local community festival called Lancashire Exposed. It's still on. That's the way forward to counter this, because mm. the big corporates will always come behind where the money is. Okay, that, I mean, that's really um, interesting, because... Um, I wonder if I could just have a conversation with you slightly about that, if that's all right for a second. So maybe I was just going to say, um, obviously in Greenwich, the arts have been deployed by by the councils. What what cultural funding there is has been used to support um, developers <coughs> as well, and therefore to support gentrification and art washing in, in Greenwich is quite. Rife. And obviously it sounds to me that you don't support that. So I, I'm just wondering, within the council itself, you perhaps are, 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 a, a, are, are, are um, in the minority? Uh, yeah, very much so. Yeah. There are, there are some of this, the Labour Party itself, because it's changed, yeah. is now starting to focus on these kind of issues. Mm -hmm. so it's still quite complex, because mm -hmm. even some people are sympathetic to say, well, if we've got to maintain frontline services, mm -hmm. cultural and other offers, we'll have to mm -hmm. wait And I mean, the, the point I would like to make is um, that with, with the amounts of money that are spent um, on some of the larger uh, cultural organisations and even on things that are there basically to beautify areas in preparation for the, the gentrification and social cleansing, if instead councils 
used that money um, and distributed it in the way that we've talked about, even a few hundred quid here and there, right, and amongst, uh, amongst communities would go an awful long way. Just think of an art centre that's 80 million quid. Think about in one town, just think about what, what we could do, what the communities could do with 80 million quid in terms of their culture, their heritage, and, what they, and if they decided what that was, what, 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 what might our society look like? And I'll tell you, it would be very, very different from the one we're living in today. Okay, in mainstream culture, disability is seen as a personal tragedy, negative, meant to be not talked about or portrayed as helpless and abnormal. Within disability culture, however, disability is not a personal phenomenon. It is the restrictions caused by the organisation of society, capital society. So our culture and our art is about how to combat the exclusion and marginalisation we face. But to do that, we face exclusion and marginalisation because disability is often not only a gender. Now, what can we do about this? Well, on Wednesday in Birmingham, we're going to one of the main streets in the city and we're going to take some workers and some disabled people and we're going to organise some political agitprop. We're going to show the public the impact that austerity has had on disabled people. And as a disabled playwright, I've written eight scenarios, scenarios which are about HMP austerity. So we're going to, to transform a have into a prison, a cut impact on a family. So you've basic cardboard boxes, string and soundpost. We're going to try and get a political message across. Wow. And, and there's an example of self-organising right there. Okay, um, thank you for that. Thanks very much. Um, if we can take uh, yourself first and then... Okay. Sorry, can I just... We're going to film this, um, you know, obviously disability political um, play that we're going to do. So 
you can see it on Facebook. We've got um, a DPAC. It's DPAC West Midlands. So we'll be putting it on DPAC West Midlands site. So if you want to have a look for it on there, we'll also be tweeting it as well because we're doing this on the run-up to the Tory party a conference in Birmingham, obviously, to start to sort of get people's awareness raised that, you know, there's going to be... And also, there's going to be a big rally on the uh, Saturday. So, obviously, it's all part of that. So, have a look around Twitter and obviously look on there. What time is it on, Wednesday? Um, 12 o'clock, around 12. Sorry? It's... it's, it's um, what's... Corporation? New Street. New Street. Outside the Lush shop... Because uh, obviously Lush is quite a political um, <laughs> organisation in itself, isn't it? Okay. Brilliant. Thank you very much. What, if, you, if we can speak to you afterwards and get your details, we'll help obviously get the message out as well through social media and stuff, yeah? Um, thanks a lot. My name's Polly Mosley. I live down the road here. And um, next week we've got the Giants coming back to Liverpool, £2 million show, Street Theatre. Royal Deluxe actually started as a really disruptive happenings kind of street theatre um, force and I really welcome um, what's just been said by the Deepak group because I feel like with the skills that we've got here in the panel in this room, the self-organising the, the theatre, that really like there's not that much disruptive happening in streets and as we know, um, streets are being corporatised, public space being corporatised, like Rhiannon, you said we shouldn't ask for permission. Um, when the KLF came back to Liverpool, didn't ask for permission, took some fire down the docks last year, like an ice cream van and that. Mm -hmm. Police went a bit ballistic. But I kind of feel like um, we need not to ask for permission and we need to self-organise in a way that takes more ownership of public space that, ha that is being eroded. And I kind of wondered if as part of this movement... Um, with the kind of skills and the cultural assets gone, if, if there's any like plans in ways to kind of enable more actions like the ones that you're taking and do it on, on more of a kind of local but kind of national basis so it's like not, doesn't become a talking shop type thing. Um. I talked about I talked about libraries as a one of the things that we could invest capital investment in. The other is to actually plumb our public spaces for events, so that they're much cheaper and easier to use and better able to use, with power, sewerage connections, stage locations, foundations, etc. Every local authority could be involved in developing their parks and their public spaces in a way which made public public space use by the community a great deal easier. Um, we've got some really nice technology for that now. Um, John Solway from Sheffield. Um, the discussion's just making me remember something I'd kind of half forgotten. Um, a project I, uh, I was actually uh, taking part in when I was teaching. I'm a drama teacher and I'm now retired. And I was also quite active um, as a community drama practitioner as well. And in 1998 to 2000, uh, in Sheffield, we ran um, a community project which involved, I think if I recollect, 150 to 200 people, um, 20 at the core, 
150 to 200 people in terms of workshop involvement over, over the time. And we ended up with a performance which we called Bordering Utopia. And this performance, um, which I was actually writer in residence, it was a really interesting process writing it actually. Um, and uh, what we did as part of that process was we had collaborative readings of texts that we'd all decided on. Uh, they included William Morris's News from Nowhere, which many people will know, I'm sure, in the room. Marge Pierce's Woman on the Edge of Time, a really interesting novel, actually, a, future, a, a science fiction novel set in the future. And Ursula Le Guin's great novel called The Dispossessed. Um, those three were the kind of three texts. And we also looked back at Gerard Winstanley and The Law of Freedom, the true levelers of the English Revolution, the diggers. So we were actually, what we were doing was looking at utopia, the idea of utopia through those particular texts. That was a very, very rich process, as I say, involved 150 to 200 people at one time or another. And we ended up with a performance uh, which we put on in Sheffield uh, early in 2000 because it was aimed at the millennium. The whole idea was, what does the millennium mean to us? That was the kind of question that we, that we, that we asked. So it's very, very interesting to hear, for me to now remember this. Um, and we actually, we actually um, filmed it. And I, I'm just wondering what we did with the film. I'm sure it must be somewhere, but I'm gonna see if I can look for it now. Okay, so okay. you can see some parallels, yeah, with, the, with your past work, yeah, cool. Bordering Utopia. Um, just an interesting thought off the back of that. Thank you for sharing. Um, the archive where I work was founded by uh, an activist called John LaRose. Um, and he, he set up... Can you hear me now? I have a tendency to mumble, so just wave at me. Um, uh, so the archive where I work was set up by an activist called John LaRose. He was part of lots of kind of oil worker unions in the Caribbean came over here, set up the Caribbean Artist Movement, lots of supplementary schools in response to the racism of education back in the day. And he called activism social creativity. Um, and so what we have in our archive, not just in the records, but in how we try and program events, is embodied utopia. So, you know, he the things that he wrote about, he was actually doing in his activism at the same time. And I think something that can happen on occasion within the arts is the separation of kind of vision and action um, and everything that he wrote he did so I, I wonder if I could invite us all to take a text and think about what it makes you dream of and just do it like Rihanna said don't ask for permission um, because it is very po it is very possible um, the events that we're doing we're putting on in quite unconventional spaces that a lot of people would sneer their noses at but we know that's where to go if we want actual people to attend. Um, so it is just about, I guess, like having the imagination to push back against neoliberalism and colonialism in your day-to-day -day working. Yeah, hi, my name's John. Uh, it, I think it's all great ideas. Uh, my only uh, sort of caveat on this is, is how do you get from A to B? And in relation to the very fact that these sort of things, we could say, happened in the post-war years, you know, in the 70s and the 80s. And that was largely on the basis that uh, capitalism was uh, able to facilitate credit. Now, 
the thing is, we're not in that period now. Uh, boom has turned to bust, and the trajectory. Oh, sorry, and the trajectory is uh, now to further collapse because that's all austerity will produce, and and as a lot of economic in, uh, indicators are that we're actually heading for a far bigger crash than in 2008. So the thing is, really, you've got to put sort of clothes on this in terms of, you know, how do you get from A to B? How do you facilitate uh, these great ideas? Obviously, everybody was, you know, nobody's going to disagree with any of this at all. But it's how do you get from A to B? And essentially, when Corbyn is still looking at borrowing money from the finance, financial markets, yeah, he's also still wedded to austerity. If anybody wants to Google uh, fiscal credibility ruling, you'll go and find John McConnell is telling you loud and clear that we won't spend money we haven't got. Now, these are all generalizations in which when you read in between the lines, right, it's political speak, yeah, it's politician speak. And so it seems to me that if we're to really do ourselves credit, we have to really take on board the mechanics of how we go from where we are where, especially in relation to why the, where the world is traveling at the, at the moment, and how essentially you then want to go back in the opposite direction. And I don't think you can get around that. I think you have to answer those questions. Because okay. none of this will happen otherwise. Okay, thanks. Would anyone like to? Um, thank you for that. That was a really um, powerful point. I guess I want to say that we shouldn't presume that those things aren't happening. Um, there are lots of pockets of communities that are doing that work and who have always operated as though they don't w want, want the system to exist. And I guess I, I too spend a lot of time thinking about the practical mechanics. So uh, a few examples that may or may not be useful. Um, we have these network meetings where traditionally it's only been other arts organisations coming, talking to each other, agreeing with each other, kind of patting each other on the back and going home. Now... We host them in community settings. Parents come, youth workers come, young people come, people who've traditionally been locked out of the arts infrastructure are now coming and rewriting the script. That's the hope. And so now we're rewriting our funding models and we are, we're having conversations with funders to ask them to rewrite their models too. No, it's not. No, it's, it's not. It's not. Because what we're talking about, actually, is a paradigm shift in the politics underpinning the arts itself. So I'm really not interested in upholding neoliberalism or colonialism in, in any sort of sense. I think what I'm interested in is completely starting again. But that's not going to... We can't do that overnight. That There is going to have to be a dialogue. And, and I guess that's what, something that me and Stephen speak about often is the kind of political education that needs to take place for the professional classes working in the arts. They come to work in every day and we have to do things on a common sense level. But what happens if you, if, you, if you suddenly start to look at what you're doing as political work and you make new choices, then you, then you start to work differently. But until we have like a kind of mass shift in the way that people perceive what they do as being political, I don't think that's going to happen. Can I? Okay. Can, can I just slightly add to what you were saying? And, and also, it's a response to you. Um, I actually think so. Recently, I was, I moved, I used to work in community work. And over the last six months, I kind of went back into it a bit in Bristol. And 
so what I'm trying to say is there are people out there working, there is money out there. They, they were doing this kind of version of community work that was based on sort of networking and going into very deprived communities. And I've not heard that term, but there was story snatching. And there, there was something I was very uncomfortable with some of what was going on. And it was, um, there was story snatching to justify the funding they'd been given and to say, we are doing stuff. So that was something I was very uncomfortable about. The other thing that was bothering me was that there wasn't, it wasn't very creative. There wasn't art stuff. It wasn't very fun. It was, you know, and it was also very, um, he the um, health were quite big in that. They were part of the funding. And, and what they were wanting to do was do lots of kind of well-being questionnaires with people. And they were kind of going to, sorry, am I too long? Okay. Okay, yeah, so, um, and so what we had to do was sit and have some very uncomfortable conversations and say that the measurement and evaluation tools you're wanting to use, we're not going to use them. We're not going to ask people to say how their well-being has been improved by this kind of stuff. And I was thinking, but wouldn't it have been fantastic if we could have done some more creative? Because um, doing certain things does improve our well-being, you know, and we know that, and we shouldn't have to prove it by filling in forms. And what I was thinking was it would be great if um, what I was struggling with, because I didn't know Bristol very well, was how I tapped into the art stuff and, you know, the meetings you were talking about. So it, it would be great to talk to you a bit after and. Okay, okay, thanks for that. Um, this is a common problem and it's something that I write about a lot. And, it, and actually some artists call it, literally they call it story harvesting. Story harvesting? What? <laughs> Harvesting of stories. So if we go to you. No, I just wanted to add to what uh, Tej was saying, really, about you have to start where people are, and there's something really, really, really important about creating spaces and buildings like this, public buildings, um, where people, like... Peter was saying like libraries where people feel like they can access and those are the things that are disappearing all the time so like things are being sold off by local authorities and we have less and less spaces to meet and talk and that's where ideas start to happen and so being able to uh, create more of those spaces, protect them, create more is really important Sorry to interrupt you there, but we do need to ask more questions. We're running out of time, if that's all right. We can discuss this afterwards, if that's okay. Um, so, um, this, this Hello, everybody. My name's Paula, and I'm very, very interested in the transformative power of community cinema. And there's some amazing things happening up and down the country. And the other evening, I went to see a film called Black Britannica, which was actually a... I don't know where they got it from. I was going to ask you afterwards. Yeah. And it's an amazing film. It's about racism in um, England in the 1970s. And the film itself was banned. It's now been, I guess it's safe to say, um, and particularly what you're saying, it's been re-released and you can now get a DVD. Now, the, the, the difficult question I'd like to pose myself and everybody here is that the majority of the audience were black which is quite unusual in an artistic or theatrical environment. This was in an art centre. And there was a discussion at the end. And um, one or two people in the audience said, well, actually, 
things haven't changed a lot. That was one thing. But the thing that really struck at my heart was, and we don't trust the Labour Party, because what the Labour Party does today, sorry, what the Tories do today, the Labour Party does tomorrow. And that's really stuck in my head. It's a difficult question. It's a challenging question. It's about difficult, challenging conversations. Look round the room here. Look round the conference hall. How many black and ethnic minority people are here? Not a lot. And so I would challenge the Labour Party, Labour Party members' momentum to think about that question. Very good point. Would anyone like to respond? Or shall we move on? So one of the kind of difficult conversations I had was, um, and this was kind of more of a sector-based conversation, but I noticed that every time I had a challenging conversation, I think something that uh, white audiences or white people don't always understand is how much... Um, secret ninja work black people have to do <laughs> to get things done and so um, I was getting a lot of defensiveness and it was driving me up the wall because at the same time a lot of the innovative work that was being done was making uh, particular organizations look really good <laughs> and their funding applications were going like through the roof and like their diversity images were like really diverse and etc etc and so I kind of like lost my shit one day and <laughs> said like we need to talk but I was re I, I'm not joking, this will stay with me for as long as I live. Because it was the first time I'd heard a white person be deeply honest about the secret stuff that happens on a day-to-day -day basis that prevents things from getting done. She said to me, the reason why people get so defensive is because they don't know where they fit in the future you're describing. And they don't want to let go because they're afraid. And so I said, that's nice, how do you think it makes me feel every day? Probably not great. And I was like, yeah, so what do you think we should do about it? She was like, I should probably tell the truth more. And actually today, the happiest I, <laughs> the happiest I was was when I was walking around and I saw another black woman and I, I wanted to hug her, like, oh my God, there's another one here. Because I walk around and there's a lot of kind of self-congratulatory, we're doing it, but we're not doing it because we're not having honest chat. So I guess I'd invite all of you to think about the moments where you feel irritated or uncomfortable or there's chats that you don't want to have and lean into that because that's the moment where something useful can happen. Hi, Stephen. I'm going to disobey your orders immediately. <laughs> My name's Rebecca. And uh, for 10 years, I worked as a curator of contemporary art until I got very disillusioned with how commodified the art world was becoming. So I retreated into policy, uh, researched and wrote a book about the cultural policy of the Cuban Revolution. And when Jeremy Corbyn stood as leader of the Labour Party, I decided it was time to stand up and be counted. So I applied to be the parliamentary candidate for South Thanet, which is where Nigel Farage infamously stood. Uh, I'm from a mixed-race background. My father's from Iran, so I, I tick that box as well from the minority ethnic side of things. Um, I wouldn't agree that Corbyn is still wedded to austerity, but I would agree that the cultural, the cultural section, the Culture for All chapter of the last manifesto was still talking in the language of the creative industries, which is wedded to the neoliberal project. So I've written an answer to that chapter. I've been trying to... Um, 
talk to the policy team and get them to implement other ways of looking at culture. And I just want to extend the invitation to anybody in this room, if you want to come and talk to me about that and get some progressive ideas put into the next manifesto in the culture section, then I'd be very happy to hear from you. Rebecca. Absolutely, yeah. Rebecca Gordon-Nesbitt. Naughty, but thanks. <laughs> I'll go to you first, mate, if you keep it brief, and then there's a couple of people over that side. Okay, okay thanks. Uh, my name's Kevin Neal. I'm here from Plymouth. Um, I'm particularly interested in what your thinking is on how arts funding is shared, because surely that actually is the root cause of the problem. Uh, if you actually devolve funding, uh, you're more likely to, to get something that looks a bit like cultural democracy and get a cultural arts background uh, that actually reflects the communities. I just wanted to pick up on something Rhiannon said about you talked about uh, the stereotypes, negative stereotypes particularly, of working class people, which to my mind is driven by the fact that the art is being produced by bourgeois people. If the art is produced by working class people, it will look completely differently. Incidentally, the outcomes of the bourgeois will also look very different because their negatives might get exposed a bit more. But uh, you know, for me, it's about how the funding works. And you, you, know, you mentioned Wales. I won't repeat what you said. Uh, but how do we get that devolved funding? It seems to me essential. Um, I think you must have come in a little bit late. Peter did talk about that at the beginning. Maybe he'll give you a brief update on that now. Has someone got a microphone there for Peter? All, all I would say is the fundamental thing to get into the manifesto is the principle of subsidiarity. Once we get subsidiarity, once we get subsidiarity into the cultural policy, you cannot have a national policy for the you cannot have a national policy for the local without an intermediary level in England. So can I can I just endorse that? Okay. All right. Okay. Sorry. Uh, I, my name's Steve Tro. I was, uh, I was, uh, <laughs> I uh, I enjoyed being a founder member of the community arts movement back in the 70s, uh, and there were a lot of us around, and we we gained a sense of what was possible, and we believed the world could change. When we found out there were others like us, and when we started to talk to each other, when we had a sense of ourselves as a movement and a movement with a cause, and a movement with a belief in ourselves, and a belief in the communities that we came from. I'm a working class boy from, from uh, West Brom. I still live in the area, I'm now a councillor there, and I'm the, I'm the cabinet member for culture. It's Tom Watson's constituency, so I have some interesting conversations with Tom about cultural policy, because I'd spent 40 years of my life, and when I stopped being a community artist, I moved into the cultural sectors. And I think the really important thing is what goes in this manifesto. And it isn't just about, let me tell you, it isn't just about the funding, but it must be about funding partly. It must be um, about who decides and what are the priorities for the funding. And at the moment, the main source of funding for anything that is not already locked away in revenue funding for the major organizations is the lottery. And one of the important things I would say is that this party, and it did commit in the 2015 manifesto, to total transparency about where that money comes from. Who buys those lottery tickets? Where is it? 
where is that harvested? And all of the evidence is, and we're doing some more work, Peter and I are doing some more work on it, all of the evidence is it comes from the kind of deprived communities like the one I represent. Sandwell's the 13th most deprived authority in the country. It's them who are providing that cash. My guess is there's about 12 million every year that is donated, that is raised for the good causes from our community. To get that, they'd have to be spending near close to 50 million a year in, in tickets. We have a population of about 300,000. Now, that's where the money's coming from. Think of the political impact of realizing where that money comes from and where it then goes. If you just ask that question, then we've got a different, we've got a different set of responsibilities and they're ethical as well as political. And then, and then I think the point is, how do you then, you don't set up, I don't think, new institutions. I think, I don't, I don't have the faith in those institutions. What I have a faith in is the, in the communities as Rihanna described them, where they can make decisions and they have ideas. And that's my experience from the 70s on the streets with people from trades unions, from tenants organizations, from community groups, because the NF had hired the school for the, for the, for, for the general election. And we had the carnival, that's what we were gonna do to gather everyone together and blockade the school so they couldn't meet there. So all I'm all asking for is two things. Transparency in that, in that uh, what Peter talked about, localism, because if the steel workers make the call on what they want to create, and then the artists co-create with them, you've already got a relationship made. It isn't about changing changing the way the practice works. I'm going to, all right. And I do really want to have a real sense of a movement again of practitioners. Yeah, thank you very much for that. All right. Thank you. Sorry. So we have two, three questions here. And a lady Sorry, with a hand up again. there and then a gentleman. Yes. It's not I know that these have been for a long time. I'm uh, yeah, sorry. I've sort of really put my hand up ages Make ago, so it's sort yeah. of like I'm answering, or not answering, just but just saying something, adding something to before. But, but Rihanna's idea of like people just need a tiny bit of money, I think that's, that's the, sorry, I think that's the best sort of thing you've said. And that um, you just, there's lots of just single artists that could do loads of people, but there's lots of people that if they just got a bit of money, wherever they are, wherever they're from, you know, could, often could do things. You know, people are having street parties, they're doing all sorts of things around their community. And, they, and if there was somewhere, some resource where they could just apply for a very small amount. But, but also there's a lot of people that, you know, aren't working and aren't doing things that would probably love to do lots of projects. And they're just, all, because there's so many forms and so many things to get through to get into do things. And, you know, lots, you know, it's not accessible even if there is something there. So it's, it's cutting out all that. And, you know, I think you'd get loads going on. I think so. that's exactly what we're trying to, to, to achieve. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Hello, uh, thanks for the work you're doing. It's really encouraging and, and heartwarming. Um, I didn't get your name, but when you, you just said about a networking thing for artists with asking difficult questions, I know there's not much time, but if we could have a couple of really little uh, examples of how we can do little changes, so some examples from you guys of how we can get out and do some positive stuff, please. We'll take all the questions and we'll see what we've got there. I'm really sorry, but I'm, 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 there's been lots of statements. But there has, I'd rather there were no more statements for anyone. So if you have a question, 
that would be good. If it's a statement, we can yeah. talk about it at, at, for, over a cup of coffee afterwards, please. Okay, yeah. My question is to do with um, uh, what somebody mentioned over here. The cultural policy of the Labour Party at the moment is very thin. And I think that... And somebody mentioned the power of cinema. Somebody mentioned story snatching. Um, I want to remind you all that we have public service broadcasting, which is incredibly powerful. It's meant to be public. It's the BBC. And we've seen the BBC over the, last, over the summer be the great smear machine when it should really be uh, showing uh, our stories and reporting on what is going on. Yeah. My accent is because I'm from New Zealand and I think we can take a leaf out of the book of New Zealanders, Māori for years and years, and you won't know about the dreadful colonial history uh, in New Zealand of what happened to Māori um, because you can't, get it, you can't get it on the BBC. We need, I think, to take back public broadcasting and I wondered how we do that. And I think we have an example in Māori television. For years, Māori, uh, they, 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 they canvassed, they did everything possible to get their own station, um, Māori Broadcasting, in 2004. Okay, so what we need is the BBC to be showing people's stories, not having the elite decide mm -hmm. what is broadcasted, okay. uh, not having the elite decide how black people are shown, how young people are shown, mostly negatively. We need to have all of these mm -hmm. people who are creating stories mm -hmm. have an opportunity to show those stories to a much wider audience through our own public broadcasting service which needs to be cleaned right out as soon as Labour gets in. Yeah, thanks very much for that. It was really good. Thank you. Thanks. Um, so I've got two here. Um, if you can be really brief, please, because we have literally a couple of minutes left. So if it's yourself and then yourself and then yourself, and we'll see if there's any questions after that, OK? Hi. Um, I completely agree with you that the creative industries is really rubbish, but there's also is there are cultural industries, and I was just wondering what you're doing to get um, into like the economic plan that John McDonald's talking about, about making these industries fairer, what is socially useful production in the cultural industries, because I know he spoke yesterday about the GLC, and actually in the original London Industrial Strategy cultural industries in a kind of fairer way of socially useful cultural production was a big section and I think we could jump upon that maybe and yes just thinking about policy and just to note that I'm I work in sort of artist film experimental film I'm on the board at Beckton we've just started to get together to write some policy but I think there's probably other people already doing it so I was just sort of thinking if anyone is to speak to me and maybe it'd be nice to speak to Rebecca about that and just so we can get all this policy together at the right time. I think we should all think about development policy together and the more together is stronger, isn't it? We're doing the same thing over and over again, like I say. There we are. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to ask, how can we uh, work together to be very, very bold in our demands? The thing that strikes me, and I've been 
working a bit with the Institute of the Art and Practice of Dissent at Home here in Liverpool, about the idea that if you look at the entire Arts Council budget for this year, it's 4% of the entirety of the UK's art market. 4%. The UK has the largest, second largest art market in the world. So the question is, how do we get hold of that money? How do we nationalise the art market? Um, we, we talk about nationalising the railways, nationalising the electricity and so on and so forth. I'm sure everybody in this room thinks it's a great idea. We're artists, we should nationalise the art market, use the in income from that to spend uh, on all of the arts projects that people hear. We shouldn't have the arts projects that people hear are talking about funded from the lottery, but a taxation on the richest who are using the art market to generate capital. How do we do that? That's a complicated question. I don't know the answer. I wonder if you could have a go at trying to figure out how they do that. Sorry, we haven't got any time for that, there, ladies. Can I? Okay. Um, we're going to be um, asked to leave the room in a few minutes. Um, just to say, last year we had like a pen and paper to give email addresses. This year we have a website. So if you can, if you're interested in carrying on this conversation, do go on the culturaldemocracy.uk website and sign up as a member of the movement. You don't have to pay any dues. You just sign and you're a part of the movement. And what we want to do is develop the manifesto. So any, anybody who wants to take part in that process, let us know. Um, we've got really good people already working on it and, and we, want, we need more if we're going to make um, a real difference. We're going to really ch um, challenge that policy process that the Labour Party be working on. So... Did you want to say anything, I was Stephen? just going to say very quickly what we're going to do is we've, we've listened, we've recorded all of your, um, your, your conversations and your comments. We're going to, we'll, we'll be working on the, the manifesto and our, our policy recommendations and we're going to break into lots of groups which will be online where you, can, and where you can begin to discuss these things and other things that we haven't even discussed and really come together because this has to reflect everybody's. We want this to reflect as many people as possible's ideas about how we achieve cultural democracy in the 21st century and, and all the things that have been said today have been absolutely brilliant and I think if we all come together we can really really make a big change and that's what we have to aim to do. So thanks a lot we just scratched the surface but if we get involved and work together I think we can you know there's an opportunity to do something really good here so thanks so much for coming. Thank